When something goes catastrophically wrong with a police action, we ask whose fault it was, who made the mistake. Focusing on who's to blame is a key question for justice. But what if we want to prevent similar errors going forward? How do we fix the system that allowed the mistake to happen? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminal injustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I am David Harris, your justice nerd and geek extraordinaire, always out there looking for news of the criminal justice system for you and still grateful as heck to have that day job as professor of law at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Now, I want you to bring to mind any kind of the many things that seem to go terribly wrong in the criminal justice system. Maybe a wrongful conviction where the wrong person goes to jail for years for something that someone else did. Or the use of a flawed procedure, even fraud in a forensic science lab that causes hundreds, even thousands of cases to be dropped. In policing, we see examples too. Arresting the wrong person, failing to follow protocols for interrogation, But probably the worst kind of catastrophe in policing is when someone, sometimes it's the officer, but usually a civilian, dies in a police confrontation or dies while in police custody. When that happens, we know it wasn't supposed to turn out that way. And so somebody made a mistake. Somebody did something they shouldn't have. And the investigation starts, and we want to know, who was at fault? Whose fault was this? Who made the mistake? Was the judgment used reasonable or not? And if it is someone's fault, that person should be held personally accountable, disciplined, fired, maybe even criminally prosecuted and jailed. That, so often, is what we hear today. Here's some audio from a news report that followed the 2018 shooting death of Stephon Clark, a young black man who was shot to death by two Sacramento, California police officers while Clark was holding a cell phone. The audio comes from KCRA Television. Listen up. We will stand up for Stefan, we will speak up for Stefan, and we will fight for Stefan until we get justice for Stefan. A call for justice today at City Hall following a fatal police shooting involving a young man holding only a cell phone. Many here want the two officers involved to be held accountable. We want a conviction. We want them to be charged and convicted. We want the use of force policy to be changed. Activists argue that if officers fear for their lives while chasing a suspect, they should employ non-lethal means to neutralize that person. We understand the foot pursuit policy in Oakland gives other options versus shooting a man 20 times. Now, wanting justice for a loved one, for a fellow citizen, for what may appear to be, at best, a catastrophic mistake and even possibly a criminal act that took someone's life, That is not only understandable, it is what justice can look like. Without this kind of ability, you could even say, how can there be a just 
outcome. Now, this kind of justice looks to the past, to the incident, to ask what happened, who did it, why did they do it, was what they did right or wrong, and if it's wrong, what should the consequences be? This is completely, fully appropriate. But what if our goals were different? What if instead of asking who is to blame, we asked how can we stop this from happening in the future? Because if we ask that question, our focus would be different. Instead of asking who's to blame, we would examine the flaws in the system in which individuals operate and maybe make their mistakes. What is it in these systems that would need to change to keep these mistakes from happening again? This kind of systems-based approach to mistakes has been used for years now in a number of industries in which people in rapidly changing circumstances have to make very quick decisions with less than perfect information. And it is proved to be the engine behind great improvements in quality control, in safety, and in outcomes across the board. Think aviation, think medicine all use this systems-based approach. It's often called sentinel event review or root cause analysis. Looking at an important event, a catastrophic accident, say a plane crash or a near miss on the tarmac to see what caused it. We talked about this very concept in episode 73 with attorney and sentinel event maven Jim Doyle of Boston, and we discussed the possibilities for applying this way of doing things to public safety and to police. It would not replace the pursuit of individual justice for police mistakes, where that is warranted, but it would be used in addition to make sure that we learn how to prevent recurrences. And it would be much different than the usual blame-based investigation. It would have to be non-blaming. Now, could that work with policing, which it seems like forever has been a blame game? Well, if we talk to Jim Doyle in episode 73 about the concept and how it might apply and the good it could do, on this episode, we get to examine an actual case of a police department and a whole community using Sentinel Event Review to analyze and learn from and improve from an actual tragedy. Actually, two tragedies, two deaths in custody in a relatively short span of of time. This happened in Tucson, Arizona, which you may not know is a city over half a million strong. And we have with us three people who were deeply involved with the Tucson Sentinel Event Review Board. They're going to tell us what happened, what this was like from their point of view, and what they think has happened as a result of this unusual process. Tanya Strozier has served as a school administrator for over 19 years in both the public and charter sectors. As an educational consultant and school principal, Ms. Strozier drove improvements in low-performing schools, and she is the founding president of the Tucson Alliance of Black School Educators. 
Miss Strozier's deep commitment to her community shows not only in her work in her field of education, but also in her work with the Mayor's Racial Equity and Justice Advisory Council and, our subject today, the Tucson Police Department Sentinel Event Review Board. Chad Kazmar has held a variety of assignments throughout his career with the Tucson Police Department, everything from patrol officer to chief of staff for former chief Villasenor and current chief Chris Magnus. He also served as the deputy chief to Chief Magnus, a position he held for over four years. In January of 2021, Mr. Kazmar became the interim director of the Public Safety Communications Department a position in which he still serves. He was also a member of the Sentinel Event Review Board. John Hallway is Associate Dean and Executive Director of the Quatrone Center for the Fair Administration of Justice at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. His research helps organizations confront challenges and turn negative occurrences into opportunities for quality improvement. He is a national thought leader on the use of root cause analysis in criminal justice and on Sentinel Event Review. And he is a frequent consultant to criminal justice agencies and corporations on quality improvement and measurement issues. John was our guest in episode 53 to discuss shortcomings in the forensic sciences, and we welcome him back. He helped to facilitate the Tucson Sentinel Event Review Board process. The full report of the Sentinel Event Review process is linked on our website. Welcome, all of you, to Criminal Injustice. Thanks, David. Thank you. Thank you, David. Glad to have all of you. Let's start. uh, It's always a good idea to start with a strong definitional uh, foundation to know exactly what we're talking about. John, uh, please give us uh, your definition of sentinel event review, sometimes called root cause analysis. We'll call it sentinel event review here. Go ahead. Sure. So um, I guess taken literally, let's start with a sentinel event review is a review of a sentinel event. And what's um, that? So, yeah, exactly. Uh, a sentinel event is in systems conversations, conversations about complex systems. A sentinel event is Uh, a serious negative outcome that is unintended or that the system is not desired to present. So uh, in aviation, for example, a plane crash is the definition of a a sentinel event. Um, In in healthcare, uh, operating on the right arm instead of the left arm might be a sentinel event or acquiring an infection from the healthcare institution that you didn't have when you entered it might be a sentinel event. In criminal justice, uh, you can have lots of things that are sentinel events. Uh, My own personal definitions of those would be um, a a wrongful conviction, for example, uh, an officer-involved shooting, what we dealt with in Tucson, uh, a death in police custody. Um, But I think what I would say is, again, it's any outcome that the system is not designed to generate. And the idea of a sentinel event review is that unlike other reviews of such events, these are designed not to assign individual accountability or blame, uh, but really what we're trying to do is learn about the contributing factors that caused the event to happen and then design recommendations for change that would prevent those from happening so that the next police officers, the next attorneys, whatever you might have, generate a different outcome and we reduce the, the frequency with which those sentinel events happen over time. That, that's very good. That'll really help us going forward in this discussion. Now, two things 
I want to make sure are clear, one of which you mentioned, the other of which I'd like you to expand on a little bit too. You talk about no blame. This is a non-blaming process. And uh, there's something else, the fact that everybody, all the stakeholders have to be involved in this. Could you talk about those two things? Because I think they're very important to the process. Sure. Why don't we talk about the idea of, of sort of blame-free review in the first at first, and then we'll go to the other one. The idea isn't that there's no accountability for people's actions. There's a spectrum from all we want to do is punish to all we want to do is learn. And I think what we try to do with a Sentinel event review is to acknowledge when the acts of individuals have been inappropriate. But what we really wanted to do is we, we as a Sentinel event review board, had no authority to discipline anybody. And that really wasn't our purpose. The purpose really was if somebody colors outside the lines, you want to identify that, but then you want to change the environment in which that person is, is making decisions so that they make a decision that's designed to get to a different outcome next time. So there's, you know, all of the existing, and, and the Tucson Police Department, Chad can talk about this, had a parallel disciplinary process for reviewing the actions of the officers in the cases we looked at. So we were able to say to the Sentinel Event Review Panel, the appropriate accountability, personal accountability for these officers, that's taking place. We're not going to look backwards at that accountability. What we're doing is we're helping the Tucson Police Department take forward-looking accountability and say, we as an organization that serves the public have an obligation to learn when we make a mistake, to learn from that, and to go forward and make fewer mistakes. And that's the kind of accountability we're talking about in a Sentinel event review. That is really interesting. So, Chad, from your point of view uh, with the Tucson Police Department, that non-blaming nature, uh, a sort of a process that runs parallel to any kind of fault finding must have been important, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Great question. And that was about a four year process for us to understand and learn that. And what I mean by that is when Chief Magnus first arrived, we had a process called a Board of Inquiry which was a fairly standard uh, review process that most departments use across the country, which includes a selection of peer members, an independent police auditor, city attorneys, uh, and some form of police leadership uh, that, that reviews that incident. What, what evolved over a, a multi-year process was a critical incident review, which predated the CERB. Um, but what we learned through that process is we still had discipline attached. So it's what we learned is it really difficult to bring staff in and say, hey, be transparent. Really, now that you've had six months to reflect on something that you had seconds to make a decision on, um, tell us tell us what happened. But that at the conclusion of that, where they received some level of discipline, let's say it was an in-policy shooting, but they, they didn't have time to turn their camera on. But we have a policy that says they have to have their camera on. So although it was in policy, they still were disciplined for maybe, maybe using curse words or maybe not having their body more camera on. And that had a, a chilling effect and a negative effect on staff wanting to come in and, and be open about their experiences. So it was through that evolution. And then when we partnered with, with John and Michael Scott um, through, through the Sentinel event review process, we had learned to peel that away. And certainly John, through his experiences, reinforced that from a true sense of a Sentinel event review, which, which does not have that discipline for that very reason. But it's interesting, right? Because the general, the public, that they do want police to learn, but we're also at the, the peak of a time where they also want accountability for public safety. 
And so, and so that's why it's so important. So the way we got there is we, um, the, the uh, administrative review of policy, application of policy happens on the front end before the Sentinel event review board occurs. Interesting. So even in this sort of time of high demand, of peak demand for public accountability of those who might have done wrong, you figure out that you have to have another process where you separate personal accountability or blame from trying to figure out how to fix the system. Now, this idea of uh, involving all stakeholders that I raised a minute ago, uh, Tanya, it's easy to imagine that we would have uh, Deputy Chief Kazmar or expert John Hallway at the table, um, but I'm guessing that you as an educator hadn't had this kind of involvement with law enforcement uh, review issues. Um, how did you become one of the primary stakeholders that was involved in this? Thank you so much for that question, David. Um, I think part of it, I think it's multifaceted. Part of it is me being a mother of uh, six black children and uh, carrying, um, I think, the warranted fear and concern about my children and their safety. Um, I think that was part of what brought me to, to the table. But I also feel that as, um, as an educator, um, as a doctoral student, I knew that there was more information that needed to be understood. Um, and, and I think a real critical piece was just uh, how Chad positioned himself. I, I think he, he came out as a, as a person and, and not, as a, not as an agency. And, um, and I think it was just the way that I saw how receptive and, and open that he was to acknowledging my humanity um, and, and the position that I bring. And, and I think it was just him being um, a friendly face. Um, he was inviting. And I knew just in the interactions that um, he gen genuinely wanted and valued my input. And, and then I think in, in opening that door, it, it really felt uh, fulfilled a need for me to serve as a bridge. And, and so I think all those pieces just came together. And you know, I was very honest with Chad from the beginning that I'd listen, I'm, I'm not going to be your cheerleader. And he didn't want me to be the T, you know, TPD cheerleader. And so I think just, it was like those uh, norms were quickly established. And that gave me the confidence and security that I could go in and bring all of me to the table. Um, and, and I know that they got tired of me asking questions, but I told them in the beginning, I am going to ask questions and they may not be easy questions. And so I think when we established those norms, and I think, I think with a lot of things that folks, uh, Chad and John did to really create the optimal environment for us to really get down to the work and do the business that we were brought here to do. So you expected to come in critical and you knew that that would be accepted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that is, I mean, is, that's just the nature of being critical that you have to know that it isn't about me uh, giving you the fanfare and giving you your, your roses and telling you everything is great and wonderful. If we want to grow, I think both personally and professionally, you have to have someone to tell you the truth and uh, give that other perspective. And that is, that is the essence of difference is that I bring multiple perspectives, a different perspective and multiple perspectives can converge in the same place and we don't have to hurt each other in that process. So I think that's, I think that just everything just aligned. You can say the sun, moon and the stars all aligned, but it really was about genuine people coming to the table wanting to really get some answers. And so I think that all those things work together to produce, I, I think, something that was a really powerful experience. 
Jan, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, you mentioned the, the idea that this be a, an all stakeholders review. And I think, um, you know, when you think about the purpose of this, the purpose of this is to prevent an, an event that happened despite the fact that nobody woke up that morning wanting it to happen, right? Nobody woke up in the morning and thought either I want to die in handcuffs at the hands of the police. And the police officers certainly didn't wake up <clears throat> in, the, in the morning and think, Today, I want to get in a fight, arrest somebody uh, and have them die in front of me, leading to, you know, at least an administrative review and quite possibly losing my job. Right. So so the question then is, if nobody wants that to happen at the start of the interaction, why does it happen anyway? And and so what you really want to do is then assemble. You want to know as much of the first person perspectives as possible, but then you want to assemble people around that that can help the police department modify its patterns and practices to get that better result. And so gathering police is, is important, but in this case where we were looking at two deaths in custody of uh, Latino males, one question that the community legitimately had was, if these had been white men, would they still be alive? Now, if that's your starting point, that's gonna be a tough conversation. There's no way around that conversation being- No evil. doubt. And, and I, give, I give Chad and I give his colleagues in the Tucson Police Department tremendous credit for being willing to have that conversation openly and honestly. And I think I give them credit for bringing in somebody like Tanya, who made no bones about saying, I'm going to be there, but I'm going to call it like I see it. And you guys are going to have to be OK with that coming in. And then she did. Right. So but having Tanya's perspective and the perspective of some of the other community members, I think, you know, I, I can tell you personally as a white man, I had a couple of aha moments where I saw a video and Tanya saw a video and we both saw very, took very different things from that video. And if you're an officer working for Chad, you're an officer working the streets in Tucson, you need to understand how Tanya's gonna see that video because it's gonna change the way you police. And, that's, and, and that leads you to different recommendations than you might otherwise generate if all you're doing is administrative review. Tanya, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to bring in um, <clears throat> when we have this, when we're talking about this idea of multiple perspectives, you know, as a, a black African-American woman, you know, there's something that W.E.B. Du Bois talks about is the double consciousness. Double and that consciousness. double consciousness, yes, that mm -hmm. double consciousness is it's not just how I see myself, but as a black woman, I always have a consciousness of how other people see my blackness. And that is a double consciousness. That's the way that I live because I've had this experience of being raised in blackness from, you know, from the day I was born, you, you learn to be aware of how other people are seeing your, your, or perceiving your blackness. And so to me that, that that's something that is always present for a, a person of color when you are interacting with police. There's a, it's how you see my blackness. And if you perceive my blackness as threatening, it is going to govern and impact what you do. And so that's why I wanted to bring this perspective because, John, that's how I see it differently. The same thing, not just because I'm a woman and you're a male, it's, it's a double consciousness that I always live with. When I walk into the store, I know that I'm being perceived differently. If I reach for something, if I don't, if I'm not carrying my Louis Vuitton purse, which I no longer have, Louis Vuitton purse, I know that I'm being perceived a certain way. It's if I, when I have these locks in my hair, I know that I'm being perceived a different way. And so for a person of color, there is always a double consciousness. 
So that is something that I think uh, this process of all stakeholders, all involved, all bringing their own social context and consciousness, uh, it actually can bridge some of that when people are very open. Did you have the same sense, Chad? Absolutely. And so before, before I answer that, though, just really for the, for the listenership, I, would, I guess I would say, let's really talk, like really celebrate the subject matter expert group that we had assembled, which included um, not, only a, not only Tanya, but also Padiaso from Amistadis, to, again, to provide a different perspective, Latino perspective. So uh, Tanya is part of a very small uh, a representation of uh, 6% of African-American in our community, but we almost have parity between uh, Caucasian and Latino population here in Tucson. And we knew we, we needed to celebrate and have both of those perspectives within this as subject matter experts of people who could only provide those unique experiences um, um, by, by being a representative of that community. Uh, we also had uh, medical field representatives to really dive into what, what is excited delirium and what does that look like and, and, and really dive into a medical perspective. We also had Margie Balfour from, uh, to provide a psychiatric uh, perspective, which we had collaborated and partnered with before. We also had uh, a representative from the mayor's office because let's really appreciate and set the, you know, we got to go back to 2020 and recognize COVID was at the peak. NBA, the NBA season had just been canceled. We had uh, George Floyd. We had our own protest here in Tucson. We had officers getting compassion fatigue uh, six day in a row of out with violent, destructive protests where, where they were, um, uh, getting rocks and bottles and urine thrown at them. So this, it was really the perfect storm, even in our own community. So not only in, 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 in the, the last subject matter expert, which is a critical component to this conversation is labor, which is unique. We had a labor representative and Tanya has ju had just as much voting right there as any sworn member, any commission member on that board. So that was another thing that was really, it's a really special part of our process where we operate from a platform of consensus. So we had all of the stakeholders in this room at a time where it wasn't safe to have this conversation. Uh, it was the peak of it not being safe and the peak of it not being comfortable. And um, not only, you know, through the, through the courage and leadership of, of Chief Magnus, where chiefs across the country were being terminated when body more camera, immediately when body more camera videos were being released, which is not the solution to this problem. Um, so I want to highlight that, that courage that, that he displayed, but also really from all, every, every subject matter expert to include John participating with the sport came in with risk because we all had a constituency to represent, uh, the stakes were high, uh, emotions were high, passion was high. And so the dynamic of that meeting on, on day one was very different than day four, day five, day six. Uh, and, and so it was a, a really, really neat process to watch how that group came together and learned how to listen and to be moved, genuinely listen and be moved by somebody else's perspective, which at the essence, right, of a Sentinel event review, you, you want to try to avoid these outcomes and create better process. Tanya, was that your perspective too, to the, the being through, going through this difficult, risky process and uh, enabled uh, others? Did it include yourself to see the perspectives of uh, Chad and his officers? Absolutely. You know, I, you know, it's one thing to speak about an experience that, that you don't live. Um, so it's going to always be limited. And I think I was really fortunate to 
be in the room with so many different professionals um, that I really, really came to terms with. I'm not putting my life on the line like that every single day. And, and I, I honestly have respect for that. Um, I, I think that there was an element of humanity that I let slip away just because I'm on the outside. And I recognize not just the physical um, danger that the officers put themselves in, but it's also the psychological part of it. So, you know, my, my PhD program is in psychology. And so I'm really, really, I became really interested in what is the mental impact of being an officer? You know, is there a, a desensitized, I'm not saying that right. They're desensitized to so many things throughout the day and, and years. And if they've been on the force year after year, what are those things that just don't bother them anymore? And, and how does that play out in their policing on a regular basis? But it also has to be, a, to me, there has to be a certain measure of fear that is playing on their psyche on a regular basis as well. So I think the relationship that I developed, seeing them as human, but also really getting an up-close understanding of what they're experiencing on a regular basis, and that has to play a role um, in, in what, what's happening as they interact with people every single day. I want to tell you, I have uh, spent the last 10 years here in Pittsburgh working as uh, a kind of connection or a bridge often between uh, law enforcement and many communities here in Pittsburgh, particularly communities of color. I'm not the only one who does that, but I have done it a lot. And I have been through meeting after meeting where the, the two sides, if you want to call it that, they never approach this point. They don't get past, well, I think this uh, of you. Well, you, I think this of you. And we never quite walk across that bridge together. So this is a, a tremendously revealing and interesting process. Let's take a quick break here. We're with three members of the Sentinel Event Review Board process from Tucson, Arizona. We're discussing how that went and what came out of it. We'll be right back. Hi, David Harris here back with you on Criminal Injustice. I have three guests this time to discuss the Sentinel Event Review Board process that took place in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, and uh, they're all telling us what this was like and what came out of it. My guests are Tanya Strozier. She is an educator from Tucson. Uh, Chad Kasmer. A uh, long career with the Tucson Police Department, all the way up to and including Deputy Chief, and John Hallway of the University of Pennsylvania Law School's Quatrone Center, who was a facilitator for the process. Before our break, uh, we were talking about how people opened up to each other, learned of the other's perspective, which, as I said right before the break, is unusual in my experience. Let's talk about actually the nuts and bolts of the process. What was it like moving through it? What'd you do first, then what came next and, and, and so forth uh, in order to produce this report, which uh, as I said at the beginning is up on our website. John, why don't you start us there? What are the steps that were taken? 
Well, I think the first thing you have to do is agree on what your errors are. Uh, and in, in the cases we were looking at, we had uh, two cases in which individuals had died in police custody. And, and obviously that's something that you can agree the system shouldn't be generating that sort of outcome. That's not something we want to have happen. It, it may be unavoidable in some circumstances, but we should always try to prevent it and learn from it. But there was a third error that we wanted to look at as well, which is in one of the deaths in custody, uh, the department had also not followed its uh, policies in terms of publicizing uh, the video of the incident. So the, the, the video hadn't been published in a timely fashion, and that obviously had a, a very damaging impact on the, on, the, on the office and the department and the, and the public's perception of honesty and transparency there. So we basically had three sentinel events that we looked at as a group. Um, the first death in custody, the second death in custody, and then the failure to properly disclose the video in the second death in custody. So the, the process starts by basically building a timeline. Um, you know, who, who said what to whom when, who did what when, what are the facts of what happened? And so in order for that to happen, the department has to provide uh, as much information as it has uh, about the events. Um, that gets provided to the, to the team to review. Uh, and then we basically ask why a lot. Now, there's actually a, 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 a practice that, that has evolved in, in the science of root cause analysis called the five whys, where you basically ask why backwards, you know, level after level. Um, at some point, it gets to be like talking to a four-year-old and you finally just say, because the sky is blue, that's why. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that's when you know you've sort of gotten to, to the, the quote-unquote root cause. Now, you know, in a situation like this, there's never just one thing. And, and that's why earlier on, I, I used the phrase contributing factors. Um, so there's always a, a multitude of different things that go into these events. And, you know, even though each one of these deaths in custody was probably start to finish a half hour, um, we came up with somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 or 80 contributing factors, all these different things that have to come together. Because if you think about it, you know, Chad and his and his colleagues, they've been policing for a long time and they've been trying to reduce deaths in custody for a long time. So we already have existing checks and balances and and things that are there to keep people safe, those didn't work, right? So the existing checks and balances by definition have failed. And what we're trying to do now is figure out why that why they didn't work, right? Why we got that bad result, notwithstanding the existing checks and balances. So as a group, we, we take all the facts, we ask why a lot, we try to get that first person perspective, the people who were actually there, what were they thinking and feeling and why did they think the things they did were the best things for them to do in the moment? And then we try to build a new environment and say, what could we have changed that would have caused Officer X or Person Y to have made a different decision? And so you, you agree on the contributing factors and then you design recommendations for change that, that would have prevented or interrupted those contributing factors so that you don't get the cascade of events that ends in a death in custody. And, and this is more or less the same process that is used so successfully for so many years in aviation, which you mentioned, and medicine and some other fields too. Is it not? It's really the same thing. It really is. And I think there's a conceptual hurdle to, to doing this in criminal justice. And the conceptual is it's very easy in healthcare for everybody to say, we all know that everybody wants the patient to get better. And it's very easy in aviation to say, we all know that everybody wants the plane to come up and come down and everybody to be safe. Criminal justice yes. is an adversarial system. And so it's much harder for people to in, in, intuitively think everybody, nobody wanted this death to happen. Everybody wanted this to be a safe interaction. And that's not necessarily agreed to by everybody up front. 
right? And and I mean, you know, look, we might as well have the difficult conversations now. I bet if you'd asked Tanya at the beginning of this, you know, not to put words in your mouth, Tanya, but I'm sure you would have said something along the lines of, yeah, I don't know that I buy that, right? How do I know those officers didn't want to kill those men, right? How are you going to prove that to me? And and you kind of have to get on that let on, on that bandwagon of we're going to start by assuming that nobody wanted this to happen. And therefore, we need to figure out a solution that goes beyond just fire the bad apple. Yeah, go ahead, Tanya. Yeah, I think just in, in thinking about uh, policing as a discipline, you know, in, in my field of education, we have so many things that we do that as a discipline uh, keep us in this mindset of ever evolving and, and really a system or a cycle of improvement. And so I think that's one of the things that I took away is that the, the, the field of policing, like where are the, um, where are those practices, the best practices? And for me, everything that we do is, is research-based or should be research-based. And so it, you know, I, I found myself at different points wondering what is it, why isn't this uh, available and, and readily used in this, in this field that, the, that one, that you're always getting better or you're focusing on getting better and that your practices are actually research-based. And not only that, why are they not or should be data-driven? So as my teachers stand in the classroom, I want to be able to say to them, these five students, I want you to tell me what are their strengths, what are their weaknesses, and what strategies are you using, research-based strategies that you're using to help them to be on a trajectory of improvement. And to me, that is, as a discipline, policing as a discipline, I think it would be effective to apply that model here. And, and I feel like CERB was the, were, that was in place to make that happen. I think that's the role that it played. But I would also encourage this as a, as a field, hey, what are your stats? And I think that's something that TPD has, has done, has built a dashboard where they can see those stats. Everyone can see those stats. And those stats, they're telling you something. And, and so I think that officers, need to also now be engaged if they haven't already done that to engage in what are your what's your data as an officer how many arrests and who have you arrested what are your I mean what are the percentage of African Americans or Latinos that you are arresting and how is that turning out because like I tell my teachers the, the data doesn't lie your interpretation might but the data itself doesn't lie <laughs> Chad go ahead yeah great all great points and to build on John and, and Tanya's perspective you know so your question was really, who do you assemble and how do you get this thing going? So I, I do want to celebrate the fact that um, one of the unique perspectives here as well is we also had our emergency communications director and, and uh, upper leadership person from the fire department, because really to evaluate the system, you have to evaluate the whole system. So from the point of intake of the 911 call to the call going out to the, to the public safety team members in the field and evaluating even how all of those shops uh, operate individually, and as a comprehensive unit um, is, is worthy of evaluation in an environment of continuous improvement. You know, I think one of the interesting things about the, you know, the profession that I chose, and, and trust me, there were certain moments I, I was thinking, man, I should have been a firefighter uh, during the summer of 2020 um, and gone to the other side of the academy. But the passion point for me was, and for, and for the entire TPD leadership team, was watching our staff um, be on the front line um, and, and actually in, in support of the community's frustrations about the George Floyd murder and, and see, but, but seeing the potential for that compassion fatigue and really being driven by, if, if we're having protests with five and 6,000 people for four hours a night and, and, and the damage and destruction and risk of injury for both the community and the officers, like we're not where we need to be with our relationships with the community. 
And I was lucky, you know, to be working for the chief at the time who said, get out there, you know, do what you got to do. And, and, and the leadership team backfilled my responsibilities and almost became a full-time job of going out and having very scary, very uncomfortable conversations with smaller groups um, who were impacted in primarily community of color. And that's actually how Tanya and I met. I invited her to one of those more intimate um, conversations about, we were publicly talking about some of our in-custody death cases before they became released uh, at a larger level. But taking it back of what is a metric of success for police departments? And I really think across the country that's undefined. So for example, in a 10-year period, we had 10, we had five in custody deaths. So 10 year in a decade, that's uh, we respond to about 300,000 calls for service. So that's 3 million calls. So out of 3 million calls, we had five in custody deaths over 10 years. And two of those happened to be the two cases that we're talking about today. And so on these lower frequency, high risk, you know, the, the learning lesson for all public safety across the country is we had progressive discipline. Our, our discipline and policies that um, the community expected from 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 police leadership uh, developed and built with with labor support. Um, we we did have strong. We had a we've had a foundation of community oriented policing for for two or three decades in Tucson. So we had a lot of the things that we needed. We had a progressive chief, but yet still everything, you know, that summer went wrong. And so it's really, you know, through the process of, of gathering and resetting and going, okay, if we're, if we're serious about an environment of continuous improvement, um, it is going to take all of the stakeholders, everybody we've spoken about today to evaluate how we ended up where we're at and through those learning lessons that there's contributions that will give us different outcomes. Yeah. John, go ahead. You had something to contribute. Yeah. So I think um, Chad's hitting on a couple of things that were really important in the, in the, the way the review was conducted and hopefully on its ability to be helpful to police officers going forward. The first one is continuous quality improvement requires people to realize that there is a distinction between saying we can do better and saying we're bad, right? Saying we can do better does not mean we're starting from a place where we're bad. And the Tucson Police Department had, as Chad said, they had already put in place the policies and procedures that people would have expected. They were following, you know, quote unquote, best practices. Um, they were experienced, they were well-trained. You know, we didn't hear about any officers who hadn't had appropriate training for what they'd done. Then they get in situations and things happen, right? And what we wanna do is learn and do better. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're going in and saying, we're starting from a place where you're bad. It's just that we can always improve and grow. The second thing that I would say is this, the idea that, you know, the communications group influences the police, the police influence the communications group, the community influences the police, the, you know, the, everybody's intertwined. There's a, a, a scientist who is a specialist in this from the UK, kind of the grandfather of quality improvement, a guy named James Reason. And he's famous for saying, you can't change the human condition. What you can do is change the conditions in which humans operate. Right. People are going to make mistakes. What we want to do is change the circumstances to minimize the likelihood of that mistake. And when you start looking at it that way, again, you know, look, maybe you have to fire the officer. That's a separate question. But what, what a lot of the recommendations we were able to make were actually with the group that Chad's at now, the communications group. For example, in a city that has parity between whites and, and Latinos, they didn't have somebody on duty at the moment for one of these cases who spoke Spanish. And then you get a Spanish speaking grandmother who calls in and there's a 
risk, that things are literally getting lost in translation. Uh, and that may change how the officers approach the call from the beginning and set the whole thing off on a different tilt, right? And that's not normally a recommendation you would be able to agree upon or figure out how to implement. But in this case, we had somebody from that department at the table and they were able to explain to us how they do their staffing, what some of those challenges are, you know, answer questions, not just from me, but from Chad and from Tanya to get those different perspectives and then design a consensus recommendation that because that department was at the table, they could say, yeah, that's something I think we could implement. And that leads you to a much more uh, cohesive process, but also one that's much more likely to get implemented than when some outside organization just comes in and slams a bunch of recommendations on the table and says, do these. Yeah. Can you say justice department? Um, <laughs> let me, let me ask uh, uh, Chad and Tanya, the same uh, double question, if I could, um, in your experience, looking back at it, do you think that the constituencies and you've used that word, the constituency that you represented uh, accepted the report the outcome and what did you think were the most uh important recommendations just one or two uh tanya you want to go first sure um, i think i would uh probably lead david lead david with saying you know I, I can't really speak to i think the acceptance of the report and and the reason that i say that is because you know um you know i don't want to i, I don't want to i don't want to represent all blackness of I course don't you know, all communities, but um, I think for for the people that I connected with and shared this with, um, I think that it at least gave reason for pause, um, that there is space to, um, to, to dialogue and to dialogue uh, in a respectful way, um, dialogue in a position of, of learning. Um, and and I, I guess I, I just, at that point, I wanna say that I do honor um, the, the, the vulnerability and the, um, yeah, just really the, the vulnerability that PPD, that they positioned themselves and they didn't have to do that. Um, they didn't have to give us access to the information that they did, but I think that they took at a really, really critical point. I think they stepped out in a leadership position and said, you know what, we, we've got to learn from this and we're willing to share so that we can learn. So I think, I think it, that really played a key role in being able to accept and receive the things that were learned in this process. I think if, if the if TPD had come out like, we don't do anything wrong, what do these people want? It happened, okay, you know, we're sorry. And if they kind of just took that type of attitude and position, I think this would have turned out very, very differently. So I do want to honor that they that they they came in willing to listen and to learn. And I actually think that, you know, Chad's presence there, though he sat in the back of the room, they knew like Chad is here. So don't act crazy because Chad is sitting right there. And I think that really, you know, it just really made, it just really set the tone and it made it turn out, I think, the way that it did. Um, and I, I, again, I, I accepted it. I accept what I learned. And I do feel like this needs to, to be a model that's applied across all police departments. Um, and so I, I would say that I'm that in. David, would you repeat for me, what is the second thing you wanted me to speak to? Uh, is there a recommendation or two in the report that really stands out to you is very important? Um, you know what? I, I think actually my favorite part of the report is um, the opening, uh, really, because we, we really, uh, I think we really acknowledged that there were some things that we couldn't do, that there were some, uh, that this, this idea of, 
and reality of systemic racism is is there. And and I think if we, you know, there were some some parts that we couldn't do um, because we can't we couldn't change it all. And so I, I think it was the honoring uh, of some things that that we needed to put on the table that we needed to address that were in the room, whether we were going to acknowledge it or not. So I, I think I appreciate that. Um, and yeah, I think that that would be my favorite part, actually. Thank you. Uh, Chad, same question. Uh, what did you find as far as acceptance of this within your own community or group or your, your officers? And what did you find uh, to be the most important one or two aspects of it, of the report? Um, as far as acceptance, David, I think, um, again, this was a, a multi-year journey and, and a lot of foundational work, which John's alluded to, had occurred. So the department was poised from a department perspective to be accept, accepting. I think it was a little newer experience for the fire department and for the communications department. And, and they're certainly through the leadership of uh, Chief Chuck Ryan over at FIRE and, and the change of leadership and a new leadership team uh, down at communications were embracing those recommendations as well. Um, so I, I think it has been accepted. I think the fact that there wasn't one person in there because everybody was a subject matter expert in, in some field that wasn't impact, genuinely impacted uh, by the other person. And I know that's fact because again, the dynamic um, in the body language and the statements and the message delivery on the first day, very different than the last day. And, you know, we were asked, uh, John and I are participating in a conversation earlier this week on this very topic. And one of the things that we celebrated was yes, uh, half of it was virtual, half of it was in person. And there is no substitute for that in person, that five minute break where you can go up to someone on a hallway and say, hey, you know, that was really courageous what you what you said and you delivered it in a way uh, where people would listen to you um, because this is an environment where if we're being candid, there's some people who just want to make a statement and then there's others who want to contribute to a conversation. And that's a boy, very, I have been there. <laughs> uh, and that's true for every subject matter expert in that room. And so I'm really proud of everybody who is who per, courageously participated with that process. Um, so all in all, I'd give us an A score on the acceptance of that. But but there's no, you know, there's no destination here. We're still on that journey. We're still implementing uh, and working uh, to, to do better and implement all the recommendations to date. And TPD is also issued a, an update on that, which everybody can find on the Tucson Police home webpage. Um, the two, two things that I, I want to celebrate the most, uh, the cultural awareness training um, that was developed out of this. So, you know, when we were having our conversations around systemic racism and how that impacted this call and Ms. Yasu's perspective of, of what she perceived to be disrespect from a 911 caller and also from public safety staff on the scene of not recognizing her leadership role in a family um, was, was, a, was an educational moment for me and everybody in the room. And so, again, kudos to, to Chief Magnus of not, uh, we were actually on, on several meetings where we were being pressured to bring in more explicit, explicit bias training, which we already had in our, in our foundational uh, trip police training and also in our advanced courses. And, and he was courageous enough to say, hey, if that worked, we wouldn't be here. So we're not doing more of it. We're going to do something different. And so what, what one of the outcomes of that was um, redesigning uh, and bringing in community members to, to teach uh, our staff on, on how they're impacted when they interact with, with, with public safety. So that was um, uh, one, of the, one of the absolute highlights for me. The other one I would say 
um, was recognition for public safety, um, which really impacted both the police, mainly police, but also fire side of once you make a scene safe and once you get somebody detained, then you have to shift to care. So custody to care. And so really recognizing, okay, why is this person behaving that the way that they are? And are they possibly in medical crisis? And, and, and really clearly delineating that um, in the Mr. Ingham Lopez case, our officers clearly had a plan. They, they were aware that the individual had a warrant. Uh, and that was, the, that was the solution to that problem, was to just get the person detained and get them to jail. Uh, and we just didn't recognize that the person was in, was in medical crisis. So that was a, another one I would say is just really, again, uh, shifting that mindset and resetting uh, because we do get desensitized to the things that we see and we do every day. Um, and really resetting as a department in that area. John, uh, let me ask you a question. In the time since the uh, Sentinel Event Review Board uh, events in, um, in Tucson, have other cities engaged in this process? Uh, what's it looked like elsewhere? They have it in a lot of different contexts. So we're doing reviews on in a whole host of, you know, kind of whatever a jurisdiction might define as an error. Um, uh, we're looking at uh, a wrongful conviction in Philadelphia. We're looking at uh, an improper use of force. Uh, didn't result in an injury or a death, but nonetheless, it was a, a, a publicized um, uh, use of force in, in Northern California. Uh, we're looking at a, an instance of a domestic violence fatality, uh, and we're working with both the cities of Seattle and Madison, um, each of whom had, you know, 90 days or more of consecutive protests, sometimes escalating into really violent riots almost um, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. And so the question that those cities are asking is, how do we promote First Amendment rights to protest and march and demonstrate um, while also meeting the, the community's desires for public safety um, and, and minimizing use of force either by or against uh, our officers. And so, you know, that you can imagine that's a very different uh, uh, set of facts that you've got to deal with than the ones that we dealt with in Tucson. Uh, but it's really gratifying to see more and more departments being willing to do this um, and to do it on such important topics. My guests for this episode have been Tanya Strozier, who is a school administrator and a member of the Tucson Sentinel Event Review Board. Uh, Chad Kazmar, who is the former deputy chief of the Tucson Police Department and currently the interim director of the Public Safety Communications Department. And John Hallway, executive director of the Quatrone Center for the Fair Administration of Justice at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. The full report of the Sentinel Event Review Board in Tucson is linked up on our website. You can find it there. Thanks to all three of you for being my guests. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, David. This was great. Thanks for having us on. Stick around. We'll be right back with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. Now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And the story of this episode's Lawyer Behaving Badly from Roll On Friday, Legal Cheek, 
and the ever-reliable ABA Journal News Online concerns lawyer, or maybe we should say solicitor, Paul Flanagan of the venerable firm of Allen and Overy of London, England. Ahem. Some months back, yet another lawyer, I mean solicitor, got yet another lesson in the capabilities of modern technology. It may seem new and strange to folks of a certain age, but, well, everyone has a cell phone. Everyone carries their cell phones around with them, such is the degree of convenience and connectedness they give us. And few people actually use cameras anymore because almost Every cell phone, at least those we call smartphones, they all contain a very capable, user-friendly camera, good enough to make not just photographs, but video recordings. So what, pray tell, was the lesson that Solicitor Flanagan learned about this? Well, it involved, to use the delicate term employed by the ABA Journal News, a, quote, romantic encounter. It seems that on a particular evening some months back, Solicitor Flanagan was in his office working late, and at some point he was joined by a colleague, a younger colleague, who is female. And, well, we have a little evidence of what happened. There they were, an older white-haired gent and a younger woman in the unmistakable physical clench that is, well, you know what it is. The lawyer was actually not even supposed to be in the office, and yeah, the whole social distancing thing then required, and the mask, and yet none of that. And we know this because they were filmed. Because yes, everyone has a cell phone, remember? And all those phones have video recording systems, which in this case produced a video which, yep, went up on video-sharing platforms everywhere and began to circulate. Who knows, sir? Very bad. Very bad indeed. So how, you ask, did this become the video of the year in the legal community in London? Perhaps a competing partner at the firm installed a camera? Perhaps a young lawyer hearing the noise, noticing an open door, taking out a camera phone... Perhaps some sort of corporate espionage? No, something else. And it also involves a technological mistake, but a technology that is much simpler and much older. You see, solicitor behaving badly, Paul Flanagan and female office companion made the mistake of doing the thing they were doing in an office with a window. A big window with an open window covering. A big window, no shade drawn, sitting at street level. And by chance, a passerby with a smartphone took the opportunity to create what became a very popular video. The old technology, you see, is glass. And it turns out this amazing material is transparent. You can see right through it in both directions. As a consequence, after months of the video in circulation, Solicitor Flanagan has <clears throat> left 
Allen and Overy, I believe they say sacked over there. The firm's statement said that this was appropriate. He had violated the firm's policies, code of conduct, code of ethics, what have you. Anyway, fired, sacked, or resigned. He's gone. The next time you feel tempted, all of you lawyers out there, take some free advice. Not at work. Certainly not with a subordinate. And not, please, for God's sake, in front of a window. Forget about codes of ethics. This man should be sacked, as the English say, for cluelessness. And maybe for just stupidity. And that closes another edition of Lawyers or Solicitors Behaving Badly, and with it, another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to Criminal Injustice with our RSS feed, if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website. That's criminalinjusticepodcast.com for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal justice system? Go to the Ask Dave area on our website, and I'll see if I can give it a whack on the show. Remember that we are listener-supported. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that by going to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. We really do appreciate that support. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Sheriff Joe Arpaio was larger than life. He called himself America's toughest sheriff. But when he became an anti-immigration profiler of Latinos, they organized and resisted. And that changed everything. Sheriff Joe versus the Latino resistance. That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. <laughs>